Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. VibeBio seeks to find every cure for every community. We think big as no one should be left behind in the pursuit of living a healthy, happy, and productive life free from disease. Collectively, we have the skills, we have the technology, and we have the passion. We now need the community catalyst to bring it all together. That's Vibe. We see a future where communities of biopharma experts and patients collaborate to identify high potential medicines and have the ability to access capital on demand to develop them. Vibecast is our weekly informational podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development and technology innovation with the dynamic people that make up the Vibe community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. You can find us on your favorite podcast player and YouTube, as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Sarah Hamburg. I met Sarah back in Deeside, London uh, in January, so I'm really excited to speak with you again. And Sarah, why don't we start with you giving an audi- the audience a background about yourself? Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so yeah, my undergrad was neuroscience, um, and then I studied psychology, and then I actually worked for quite a while before I entered academia and did a PhD. So between that, I was in sort of the nonprofit sector. I worked for some sort of um, cancer research charity and Alzheimer's disease charity, and I also worked in the NHS uh, for a year, which was really interesting. Um, and then I went in more into academia, and I worked at University College London in the division of psychiatry. I did my PhD there while I was working. Um, And then I moved to King's for a year as well. So I think I was in academia maybe for about five years, concentrating on sort of cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. Um, And then I left academia. What was the the title of your thesis? I'm curious. Oh, my God, that's an amazing question. I don't know the answer to. It was like... um, so I was looking at resting state activity with EEG, so, um, which resting state is when the brain is not doing anything particular. So you're not like playing any noises or showing anybody any pictures. You just ask your participants to sort of sit there still and and just kind of like think of nothing in particular. So I'm really interested in, in the brain at rest. And I did um, EEG, so electroencephalography. And I was looking at dynamic causal modeling, um, which is a way of looking at connections within the brain Um, and I was focusing on younger adults with down syndrome um, looking at differences in intellectual ability and correlating that with differences in the brain activity so I'm sure the title is like a mishmash of some of the keywords there I actually can't remember what it was it was was actually quite a while ago that I did it but uh, that's a good question that was a good uh, summary I appreciate that um sorry yeah and then I went in then I left academia um I wanted to just do something different for a while and learn some new skills and I was very interested at the time in fintech I was interested in cryptocurrencies and I ended up working in a fintech consultancy for a year um called Capco I was on the um the R&D team and then I went and worked in JP Morgan for two years um sort of in their global technology line of business um which makes it sound like line of business sounds so small it's like basically the equivalent of like I think they had like 12 billion dollar budget they're they're one of the biggest tech companies like that there is but it's within JP Morgan which is very interesting um and I was working on innovation there essentially so that was really two years during COVID and then after that I went down the web3 rabbit hole and um was working at the intersection of science and web3 and I've kind of been there ever since apart from 
um, a couple of months ago, I went back to academia. It's funny how people talk about it, like leaving and going back. It's all it's all connected um, as far as I'm concerned. And now I'm doing a postdoc. Awesome. That's incredible. What is your postdoc focused on? Um, so again, there's probably a lot of buzzwords in this. So I'm looking at neuromorphic computing, which is a new computing architecture, although well, it's not that new, but it's relatively new computing architecture, which is brain inspired. Um, and uh, developmental robotics. So developmental robotics is taking inspiration from how humans learn um, and applying them um, in robotics. And I'm looking at the intersection, which I guess is developmental neurorobotics. So um, that's what I'm looking at at the moment. That's a hot topic as well. Very interesting. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And it's, it's incredible that you're doing all that. And, you know, first of all, thank you again for Decide London and organizing that. I know the team was did an incredible job there. Um, and if, for those that might not know, Decide London is just one community of many in the world that are taking the concepts of Decide and introducing it to scientists and researchers to help them just consider different ways of doing science, really. So, yeah, thank you. Know. I was just one of many of the organizers. The main key drivers there were definitely Decide London core team. So Alfie and Barrett, like they were, they were incredible and they really pulled it off. It was, it was a really great event to be part of. Awesome. Shout out to those guys. Uh, did a great job. You know, I'm curious about your your current postdoc, neuromorphic computing AI, really cutting edge stuff, new things. Um, can you talk to us a little about what are your goals from doing that? Like, what are you trying to solve and who are you trying to help? No, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, neuromorphic computing is something I was interested about for a while. I wasn't actually aware of it until maybe about five years ago. Um, I met somebody who was working in the space. And as soon as he explained, it's like brain inspired computer chips. I was like, as a neuroscientist, I was like, oh my God, tell me more. Like, how does this work? It's and like, future, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, the I, well, I think so. Um, I think it will definitely revolutionize AI, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in it. And when you actually look at sort of the, the motivators of it, it's this idea with traditional computing, you have separation between um, memory and processing. And it's this sort of von Neumann architecture where you have constantly have to go back and forth between the two. Whereas the brain, which is like the ultimate supercomputer, like the so low power and the amount of computations that we can do, if you take inspiration from that, it's much more um, parallel and scalable in that there's there's no sort of clear separation between the, the, the memory and the processing. As with neurons, um, the processing units, the memory is stored in the strength of connections between processing units. So it's much more parallel essentially um and because of that you get orders of magnitude um difference in energy consumption so this will definitely be the future for i think sort of like edge devices um things which are which require low power um in terms of the ai so it's predominantly spiking neural networks at the moment which have you know certain kinds of use cases but some of the issues that we encounter with it is with traditional algorithms you need like large data sets and lots of lots of um, training on it and we're looking at how with the postdoc basically we're looking at how you can enable more human-like learning so like this idea of like one-shot learning like we might be trained as humans on one thing and then when we see something kind of similar we can kind of infer how it works you know essentially i use a phone and then if a new phone comes along which has different interface, I, I'm not going to struggle too much. I'm going to have this basic concepts. And it's about that sort of transfer learning. And we're looking at this idea of like, if the AI is more human-like and brain-inspired, well, how do humans learn? You know, we we sort of, um, we have skills which, which build on each other um, into actual abstract concepts. We have curriculums for learning. So it's 
it's taking some of the ideas of how humans learn and putting them into artificial agents, essentially. And one thing we're particularly interested in is, is embodiment, embodied cognition, um, which is something I remember I was my master's was in psychology and I became really interested back then by this idea um, of it's not your body isn't just about processing. It's not sorry. It's not just about sensing well, processing as well. You actually your mind actually can offload cognition into your body like and you, your body can actually help you scaffolding with, with cognitive processes. For example, you see this in children when they count with their fingers. And some of the interesting research from the lab is that if you have a robot and it counts with its fingers, it, it performs better like in math. So one thing we're particularly interested in is, is math skills and sort of those more abstract concepts. Um, but yeah, it's really combining lots of different fields, neuroscience, which is where I'm coming from, computing, which I'm learning a lot about, and artificial intelligence as well. Um, but in the field more in, in general, it's it's we use particular some particular hardware chips, which are called Spinnaker, which are developed by Manchester University. Um, but there's some interesting things going on elsewhere with um, sort of more like wetware, like um, neuromorphic computers that are actually a combination of, this is a great paper that came out recently called Dish Brain. It's a combination of like actual like neurons with like electrodes inside and they taught this dish of neurons to play pong um so it's a really fascinating intersection of lots of different ideas lots of different technologies and i'm personally interested in it very much so because of my neuroscience and psychology background like some of the things which i was looking at with my phd or which we find in neuroscience it's very difficult to implement and to test especially when you're thinking about human cognition um it's very complicated um and for me, I feel like if we can build more sort of synthetic brains, synthetic minds, that will then in, provide us with a tool which we can then go and test concepts in. So, for instance, with my PhD, I was looking at uh, this idea of inhibition and, and this idea of maybe in the brains of some people you have over inhibition, too much inhibition. So like the activities kind of like dampen down. Well, with neuromorphic chips, which actually have like neurons and synapses, you can actually go in and sort of tweak those kinds of um, variables and see what effect it has synthetically. Um, so you're not doing necessarily animal testing, you're not doing human testing, you're kind of doing something else, this new thing. And I personally think it will revolutionize psychology and neuroscience as much as the fMRI machine has, if, if not more, when we have these new synthetic tools where we can actually test things out. So that's why I'm really interested in it. That is so fascinating. And I'm imagining testing on a chip, like you're saying, you know, we have that now to some degree for biotech, but doing it in the neuroscience space is sort of mm -hmm. more difficult. So that's fascinating. And I I'm constantly think about like the BCI brain computer interfaces and how that's going to transform society potentially. Like we'll see how that works out. What do you think about the company Neuralink? Um, Elon Musk Neuralink. Oh yeah. I remember when Neuralink first came about and I was reading about what they were doing um and uh i remember at the time i didn't have any many particularly favorable opinions of uh, what they were doing but i think i was partly a bit ignorant because there wasn't that much that was obvious um from the outside but i do think some of the engineering is absolutely amazing and fantastic and like the ideas are good but i personally am more interested in non-invasive um brain computer interface uh, methods i actually recently interviewed i'm starting a podcast as well and i recently introduced awesome. my first guest <laughs> was uh, sumner norman and he's done some amazing research looking at uh non-invasive or ultra ultrasound for bcis um so Neuralink is 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 one of many companies who are doing some really innovative work i don't i think what they're doing is very interesting and very innovative um but there's just so much going on in the space and and actually the last couple of days after reading this dish brain paper i've been really thinking about bcis and 
I kind of think it might end up bearing more towards the sort of like exocortex, like wetware kind of scenario where maybe we take uh, my cells and, um, you know, I freeze them or whatever, like while I'm relatively young. And then maybe uh, when I'm older, I can reprogram those cells into hippocampal cells. And then maybe I can have that um, implanted or I don't know if the word's explanted or if I just made that up or like just, you know, stuck on my brain and maybe my brain can then make use of those new cells. I don't know, like, but I'm interested, the more I'm in sort of this neuromorphic space, the more I'm interested in, in how brain computer interfaces in the future the word computer is going to be different because we might end up using these neuromorphic chips. And, and then what are you talking about? If a computer chip is, is also wetware, then where is even the boundary between the brain computer interface and the neural prostheses and things like that? So, yeah. This is so fascinating. You know, I, I'm with you there. And I think, you know, this is initially, I think all these technologies will be uh, focused on trying to help people, like you said, with disabilities or really um, extreme cases, but eventually we can imagine, you know, with technology always getting better and, and increasingly faster, we can imagine everyone sort of leveraging these wetware computer chips or computer um, cells or, or stem cells, or I don't know how you want to call it, but to make us smarter, faster, better, I don't know. It, it's just a weird world to consider, but you have to consider now there are treatments for specific diseases that people are cured from. So like there are, you know, lots of technologies that um, if we didn't have them, people wouldn't have, wouldn't be alive today. So it's not that hard to imagine that stretch to extend it into the brain. Mm -hmm. It's just a fascinating world. <laughs> That's the thing as well. It's so hard to conceptualize these things. That's what I love about technology. What we call a brain computer interface now will probably look completely, completely different. It reminds me of when I was a kid and like all those future films that were set in the future from the 80s all look exactly the same because that was our vision of the future and what we're talking about now in a hundred years well the concepts i think will still be there but we can't even imagine what it'll be like and that's kind of yeah that's what makes me so interested i think in all, all this stuff let's take a step back a little bit um we, we mentioned in the dci earlier on decentralized science so there have been many problems discussed about dci within it um what do you think are some of the problems most important problems that DSI is trying to work on and, and that you see some traction in? Like what are the initial use cases? Yeah, I think there's so much, there's such like a myriad of, of problems in modern science. And I feel like the great thing about DSI is everybody's kind of focused on, they're kind of like self-assembled into these communities and they're focused on the particular problems that they sort of feel most passionate about. And that's something that I really love about it. So it's difficult kind of for me as someone who's not working on one particular problem, but from the outside and watching sort of the space change, it, it seems like a lot of the problems are very interconnected and circular, you know, like the, for me, ultimately, I think the main problems like come down to funding. Like the more I think about it, the more I'm like, that's kind of at the basis for everything. Um, in my opinion, if we had more stable and sufficient funding for science, I think people would be much freer to pursue, you know, the curiosity-driven research and do replications if they want. They don't have to worry so much about publishing in in specific journals, so they'll be more maybe more collaborative. Um, things will be more open source because you don't have to be um, so adversarial almost. Like I just think the the lack of funding in science fundamentally drives pretty much all the problems that I can think of. Um, but I would love it if someone has a different opinion and can explain to me why there's some other problem. Um, but yeah, I think the D so DSI, I think has a big opportunity to, to help make funding more transparent and, uh, fairer. Um, you know, there's, there's, 
the opportunities we see big donors like Vitalik donating to science and donating to health. And I think that's absolutely incredible. I think crypto itself offers a whole new funding stream for science that you can have imagined, like I was talking about earlier, it's hard to imagine the future. Could you imagine if, you know, 20 years ago, we we're talking about this, this internet money that's going to fund science, like you wouldn't even be able to conceptualize that. Um, if you read an article in the past about Shiba Inu and, and COVID relief in India, you'd be like, what? Um, so I do think crypto has the potential. What that will be in the future is is difficult to sort of uh, imagine. But for me, the benefits of decentralized science will ultimately probably come down to funding, but not just the amount of, of money or crypto or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's also the the transparency of it. Um, I have spoken to people over the you know the last year or so, um, some people in in other countries where things aren't. Um, well, basically, they've said to me, you know, in their country, scientists get funded from government research, but there's a bit of corruption. Does it actually end up in the science labs? Not all of it ends up in the science labs. So the idea of like you can actually track where the money is going um, is really like probably life changing for, for many scientists in some countries. And that's not even something I'd even thought about, you know, doing science in, in the UK. I never thought that my funder will give me some money, but it might not end up with like necessarily in my pocket. Um, and also, of course, the idea of everybody it's very democratic so you can have people communities whole countries even voting on what research they want to fund and that for me is extremely exciting you no longer have these sort of I don't I don't necessarily want to call them gatekeepers but like people who are it's their job to to just assess these things all the time you can have just anybody from anywhere coming along and just voting in a democratic way what they want uh, the country or the government to to fund or their communities to fund scientifically so I think that's quite interesting sorry I don't actually know if that even answered your question you asked me about problems that DSI could solve yeah no you answered the question I think the problem and the use case that you identified as being like lowest hanging fruit potentially or most important is this ability to fund or have the crowd or the community mm -hmm. fund certain projects and research and science which is quite interesting because if you think about it PhD students, especially younger PhD students looking for funding are one of the most insecure people because they're like, where am I going to get my next uh, grant? And it's also like just this mission to apply to grants and finding um, potential, you know, projects to work on that have funding. So um, if there was a better way to do that, and mm -hmm. I think DSI is trying to work on that, I think that would help make science happen faster, essentially, mm -hmm. like it'll accelerate the speed at which... Um, yeah materials and start to you know, do their projects and experiments so, yeah. yeah and also the thing as well is is this idea of science is kind of confined to academia or industry and we don't have really enough structures i think yet where people can be empowered and funded to do science it's very difficult um to get funding as a scientist if you're not affiliated with a particular university if you're a citizen scientist and you come up with like an amazing idea and you can now we we can through decentralized science you can form a community you can have a shared wallet you can get grants which are really really quick um that was kind of unheard of before whereas you had to go to certain set funding bodies um and i think this idea of being able to take science outside of universities is something that i feel really passionate about as well and i do think that's something which will uplift many countries who maybe don't have the the higher education university infrastructure that sort of i've been privileged to be part of definitely absolutely and i think one of the companies that's doing a pretty good job with this is gitcoin with their decide grants and um i just think that is a great example for the entire industry to learn from potentially and also like be part of uh so that's really interesting mm -hmm.
Another problem in DSI, or another problem that DSI I know is trying to solve is this idea of open peer review. And as a scientist yourself, you've probably done a lot of peer reviews. Um, what is wrong with the current peer review system now? Mm -hmm. And what can DSI do to make it better? I think everyone you talked to probably has a slightly different opinion of like what the problems are. Um, I think one of the issues is the time it takes. It takes a very, very long time to submit a paper and then for the editor to uh, source reviewers and then for the reviews to come back and and partly the reason why is because you're asking a scientist to do it for, for free who have who already are overworked and um, it's it's not necessarily something which is going to be a priority for them um, and so maybe you say you can do it and then like a month later you're like oh actually I can't do this etc or you know I get emails all the time um, constantly you know like several a week asking me to peer review things if I did that would be more than a full-time job like if I said yes to all of them so I do think there's kind of a lack of people who are uh, peer reviewing research and that causes some of the problems the bottleneck problems um, in terms of they just can't get enough reviewers I've heard some people say like this idea of peer review is like grinding to a halt I am not an editor I can't say how true that is or anything like that but it's something I'm probably part of because I've definitely said no to a lot of papers. I mean, I review papers, but I've definitely said no to way more than I've reviewed just because I don't have time. And I've definitely said I can review things and actually it turns out, oh, suddenly I've got a deadline and I really can't review it. So I say no, and that's going to contribute and push things down the line. So um, yeah, I think some of the problems are the time it takes. Obviously from a researcher's point of view, it's, you know, this um, idea of being unpaid, um, which is problematic because you do, or do a lot of unpaid work in academia, which is relatively low paid to industry anyway. And a lot of people are already overworked. Um, but it's, it is, I have to say, it's a privilege to peer review. And that is, it is part of science. And I think most scientists would say that they do enjoy peer reviewing. You get to sort of like see the newest ideas that are coming through. You get to be part of the big science machine. It's, it is, a, you feel very privileged to do it. Um, but it does have those issues. Also, you know, the bias as well. Maybe you only get certain types of people who are saying yes. Um, I've spoken to researchers before who have told me that they have hypotheses that most of the people who say yes are junior or the senior PI says yes and gets their PhD students to do it, which I think is quite common. Or potentially um, women are maybe more likely to say yes because we are just more used to doing unpaid work um, and, you know, not being recognised for our work. And potentially the, the the shoulders, it falls on the shoulders of women more for peer review, which is something I don't think, I haven't seen any research into and I think it would be very difficult to do so because it will be, the journals will probably know that information or maybe not even know the, the gender of the peer reviewers anyway. Um, so yeah, I think DSI is, is good because you can have more, potentially have more transparency. But there are a few sort of, um, not myths, but there is the, the way peer review just talked about sometimes in the DSI community is sometimes not quite accurate because there's so many different journals out there that do peer reviews in so many different ways you know this idea you're unrecognized for peer review well the most recent paper i peer reviewed they said do you want this to be associated with your orchid id which is like a researcher id and i said yes so that means that goes towards my academic record so essentially i'm recognized for it i haven't been paid for it but i'm recognized for it i did speak to someone in germany once and they explained that there's a, a system in place there where um, if you're a peer reviewer, something to do with the copyright laws, you you can actually get a slice of the revenue uh, for the journal somehow. And I, I wish I could remember the name of this scheme because I remember looking into it and thinking this would be amazing for for, for DSI to um, build some infrastructure around because a lot of it goes unclaimed because of just um, issues of, of red tape, essentially. Um, so there are some ideas like that, which are already in place. And also open peer review. I read a paper the other day and it listed the peer review 
pictures next to it. So that is something which does happen uh, sometimes, not always in the space as well. And as a reviewer, I can send comments to um, the people who's the authors and I can send um, comments to the editors as well. So if I wanted to as a reviewer now with the infrastructure we have, I can tell the authors, you know, everything that I have to say. I don't have to hide it from, from them. Um, but I think peer review is has many small problems and depending on people's experience of it, they will have a different opinion. To me, I do think we can always improve. I really think we can have a better system, um, but uh, we'll have to see what people build. And ultimately, if, if, science, if the UX is good, a scientist, they're already very stretched. Unless the UX is good, um, even if you're paid or not, they're not going to use it. So I think that's an important thing for people to consider as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And I think it applies to not just peer review uh, applications, but all of the DSI applications, essentially all applications these days. Um, no one wants to use a product or a service that doesn't have a good experience. You know, everything has to sort of work right. It's just the expectations we've grown to develop over time. Um, you know, mm -hmm. phones work great. Everything works pretty smoothly these days. It's not a, not a struggle. So no one wants to sacrifice that. Um, that's amazing. So the evolution of DSI communities. Now let's think about this. There's only been what, like five years. Maybe you can argue that DSI has been around for, um, mm -hmm. and it's changed incredibly. I think last year was probably the biggest growth period for DSI from what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And there's many new communities and organizations and, and DAOs. There are just so many DAOs now and communities trying to take their community and build value from, uh, collectively together. So it, it's quite interesting. Do you have any specific sort of examples that you want to highlight or point out in the DSI space that you think are doing some incredible work just to kind of share with the community to you know, help them understand? I think it's a it's really interesting how the, the space has evolved, as you say. Like, I'm really glad to see sort of these geographic hubs forming. I think that's really exciting because I think the problems in science will be nuanced towards certain geographical regions, um, somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat. So it's nice to see like DSI Japan, DSI Africa forming. Um, and I think that ultimately I see these sort of as almost like they could become future institutions. They're almost like a prototype institution where people come and form around ideas and empowering citizen science in those regions to do science outside of traditional um, academic halls, I think would be quite exciting to see whether or not they want to go that way. That's the way they're going. It's exciting anyway that they're sort of becoming um, a hub for people in, in the region. Um, in terms of actual individual like DAOs, I mean, I don't want to like, I guess I'm I'm excited by Athena DAO. Like I think what they're doing with women's health is really good. And their talk at DSI London was amazing. The panel, uh, Laura Minkini and the the panel that she put together for women's health was was absolutely fantastic. Like I learned a lot. It's very insightful. Um, I think that, so I think Athena, what Athena DAO are doing is really interesting. Um, I also think the flip side is interesting where, the, what's happening is originally lots of DSI communities were forming um, and simultaneously what you have now is communities which have already been decentralized science in a way like Vibe but also like the Active Inference Institute now sort of um, you know labeling themselves under the DSI umbrella and looking how they can incorporate Web3 tools into what they do so you're kind of coming at it from both ends now and this is a bit of a convergence between Web2 becoming Web3, Web3 maybe abstracting away you know the Web3 so it feels more Web2 so it's a, in, definitely an interesting time um, for the communities. Um, I quite like um, what DSI London have done and specifically specifically because they have built a community but they're also built, they had the conference and they're um, doing some things with workspaces I think where you can like go and co-work 
Um, and they're really definitely building and championing the D-side community in London, which is really exciting. So I'd love to see more of that. And I'm sure it actually does exist in other cities. I'm not actually based in London, um, but I try when I go down to sort of connect with, with the community Where there. Uh, I'm in the north of England. We had snow today, which is uh, quite rare, actually, even though I'm in the north of England. Uh, I was in London for a long time, but I've, I've um, come back up north. If that's anyone's wondering where my accent's from, it's from the north of England. Um, yeah, so I do think it's specific communities. Yeah, I, I like the geographic hubs. I like sort of the DSI Londons. And then I think what Athena Dow is doing is really cool. There's so many, though, I couldn't even begin to sort of like pull out specifically but in in terms of more traditional decentralized science communities um maybe embracing decentralized science like the active inference institute so um, i'm on the scientific advisory board of the active inference institute and they're really interesting they've been working a long time as a decentralized science institute and they're they really incorporating some really cool tools into what they're doing uh using ai um to sort of like they have they record their sessions and they'll use ai to like um uh, pull out different things and, and add a DOI, so an indicator, so you can actually start referencing things that have been said throughout the conversations. So, yeah, I like what they're doing as well. That's a good point you just brought up, though, the ability for AI to sort of summarize mm -hmm. Zoom conversation, let's say. Like, I think that's um, not like a huge deal, but if you think about it, it'll help share information more efficiently with a lot of people like people don't have to fully watch a whole video but they can get the snap the snippets um of the important facts you know mm -hmm. pretty quickly yeah. and i think we're going to be seeing that a lot overall with as ai starts to develop or yeah. starts to become like prevalent everywhere which yeah. is already and, happening it's pretty and science doesn't just happen in pdf papers right it happens right. through conversations it happens through podcasts it happens all the time in, in conversations and, and telegram chats like that's people doing science collaboratively and how can we take those insights and those conversations and create sort of a, embed them within the existing scientific narrative and infrastructure for future generations to refer back to uh, and build upon ultimately so it's not just all lost you know the culture of science has evolved so much over the last in my experience like also like you know, 25 years 30 years or so it's been um when i was growing up science wasn't really that cool or interesting i think uh but over time my mm. personal interest in science grew and grew and now i'm seeing like everyone is sort of interested in what science can do because it is affecting they're seeing that it's affecting their lives quite uh impactfully so um yeah any any thoughts on like the culture of science not just d side but the idea of you know yeah research and thinking things through and coming up with new ideas that the world hasn't seen before i mean that's pretty incredible yeah i love that actually i've never really thought about it that in that way the culture of science has drastically changed i guess it's because of digitization of everything and the internet and we're more interconnected than ever and science ultimately is about sharing ideas and now we have infrastructure where we can do that instantly with anybody anywhere in the world in a second um we're just having this massive exponential growth and i feel like we almost as scientists or as society don't really understand how to harness that or even like what to do about that like as, as i'm saying now talking in a podcast is 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 almost like adding to the scientific consensus and literature and how do you extract that and then actually embed it in a way that other people can build upon i don't think we're quite there yet i think there's just lots of very interesting experiments and maybe it's a sort of millennial thing and growing up with the internet like in my house we had i was quite lucky because my uncle's computer scientist so we had it we always had like his old computer and i remember we had ms dos and i had to like learn to like do the code in ms dos to play the computer game or whatever and so i grew up seeing computers evolve from that in 
into like this, I have a supercomputer, well, not a supercomputer, but what I would have labeled a supercomputer back then in my pocket now. And I carry it everywhere with me. And I can ask, I, I chat to, um, you know, um, chat GBT all the time, like asking it to summarize things um, and uh, give advice for things. And I'm, and also obviously just play around with it. So I think from where to, in my lifetime, um, all our lifetimes, where we've seen technology go from and, and to has been a massive driver for people being more interested in it. I guess technology and science aren't necessarily the same thing. For us, maybe in our generation, they feel very intertwined, maybe future or past generations not so intertwined. But of course, with the with COVID pandemic and things like that, science, everyone became an expert. You know? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's a super interesting time, I guess, for science culture because of the new technologies and, and the global pandemic as, as well. And, and obviously chronic health conditions, lots of people have them, lots of people know of somebody with a chronic health condition um and so we're i think we're ever more conscious of our health mental and physical and that plays into science as well let's take a step into the future because we're talking about a lot of ai and science and things and uh, i'm sure you've heard of the singularity it's this concept uh that like the year 2045 or something humans and ai will sort of merge or, or something like that or we'll upload our brains um, it was this concept by Ray Kurzweil. Uh, he kind of coined it. What do you think about the singularity? I feel like just your explanation then, I feel like I've already merged with AI. Like I use it constantly, like every second, like not every second, but I'm, well, AI is probably every second I'm on my phone using me, <laughs> you know, it's algorithms are probably sending right. me things. And I use it uh, on our Zoom call now. There'll be some AI probably like filtering out noise and and et cetera. So I think AI is already embedded in our lives. I guess it depends at what point you would say that we have become one with the AI. Um, and I'm not sure at what point that would that would be. I guess coming back earlier to what we were talking about before at the start, the brain-computer interfaces or like exocortex, I suppose that would be an obvious merging because it's part of your body. But personally, because I'm interested in embodiment and there's this idea of radical embodiment as well, that like our tools, our phones are part of our cognitive world and they're part of our, we offload our cognition to them already. In terms of that concept or theory, the AI is already part of me in a way. Like, um, so... I think it would depend on what mood I was in <laughs> at the time when you asked that question and where I said what my opinion of the singularity was and when it's happening and what will happen with it. Um, but if I, I think history has taught us anything, we're not very good at imagining what's coming in yeah. the future. Um, That's for sure. All we can say is that it's happening faster than it happened in previous years. It's sort of like the exponential curve we're seeing now. Um, yeah. And we've seen for the last, you know, 100 years, you can, you can argue um that's fascinating so one area you kind of talked about you know you know bci a lot actually but other wearables other sort of i don't want to say other wearables but like personal wearables devices you know like talking about ai we all probably have like a wristwatch or something that has some ai in it potentially um how do you see that sort of improving people's lives i know that you know there's some obvious ways you can like monitor your heart rate and all that stuff and kind of make recommendations but if you combine that with the BCI devices, I know what, are, what kind of world are we going to live in in like five, 10 years? <laughs> and I know it's, I'm asking you to predict the future and uh, you don't, I know that no one can do that, but I'm just curious what you think. I love the fact you're asking me that question. What kind of world are we going to live in? That's the coolest question ever. I mean, I don't know the answer, right? But I can tell from my experience with wearables and, and where I think kind of the value add would be. So 
Um, yeah, I'm really interested in, in wearables and the data that we get from them. So I wear an aura ring and it tells me about my sleep. It tells me about everything. tells me about my steps. Um, and I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think everybody, uh, not everybody, a lot of people these days do find it very interesting as a society becoming more and more interested in our health. And and um, I personally, so I have a medical condition called fibromyalgia and that affects me. It's very variable. Like some days I like I'm absolutely fine. Most days I'm absolutely fine. But some days for absolutely no reason that I have ever been able to discern um, is like I just feel like I've been hit by a bus. I'm just like in absolute chronic pain. Sometimes it lasts days. And for me, I'm interested in the future of wearables of enabling people like me to be able to monitor better their health and their triggers for things like that. And then ultimately being able to pull data like that. So you can feed that back into the science um, and people can do more studies on more data. And then we can have more answers for everybody like me. So yes, I think wearables are good for empowering the individual with their health, but I think where the real value add is at societal level, if we can leverage the data from wearables, which is why I was interested in in this um, when myself and Alex, Sandra McCarroll, um, we did the Lynx project, which was looking at Web3 for, for leveraging um, data from wearables. So as a patient, as a human, I can own my own data and I can pull that in a big data pool and scientists or pharmaceutical companies can come along and they can like, you know, test the data and find mine it for insights. And I think if we have more data about more people, we will have more insights and then we will have more, uh, hopefully more treatments and, and knowledge about health and, and disease and, and environmental factors as well, you know, toxins or or anything else which is happening in people's environments. Yeah. And, you know, I'm with you there. And I think every human is sort of like a scientist in their own way. Maybe they're not all great scientists, fine, but they are all generating data, right? Uh, and in that way, that data can be hopefully in the future, somehow integrated, maybe in an open, decentralized way into yeah. this um, system and maybe in a privacy preserving way as well, so that we can all learn about yeah. ourselves individually and what we should be doing, like personalized medicine, but also as like a, um, using our genetic information as well, like how we've evolved, like how are we slightly different and and why are some people able to do things others can't? And, and I think those insights will help to drive um, treatments too, to a lot of issues. And first of all, and in addition to that, uh, thank you for sharing about, you know, your um, fibromyalgia condition. I think that's, um, I'm sure you've had to go through a lot of different trial and error and trying to figure out first how you got diagnosed or when you got diagnosed and then um, any treatments or like tips or symptoms that you can relieve in certain ways. And all the things that you've picked up over your years, I'm sure you would love to be able to share with someone like immediately directly so they can help themselves. But it's hard because everyone's got that personal journey and identifying those solutions are sort of, um, you know, you can read a few books or maybe you can talk to a doctor and that helps. But at the end of the day, everyone has this personal journey of life. And yeah, um, yeah I just hope that we can eventually one day as a, as a community of people come together and provide, you know, insights to help each other. And I think that's what we're trying to do. I think that, you know, it just takes time and um, we shouldn't rush it either. I think like if we rush it, it's going to create issues as well. So I agree. Yeah. I think one of the main drivers for me being interested in decentralized science is, is, you know, I've had a chronic health condition since I was 19 and fibromyalgia has very much had, I mean, you could, it had the bad rep. It's like, oh, it's all in your head or whatever. Like, and I think it was just very um, under-researched. I think in the last five years in the UK, I read a stat that uh, they spent 1.8 million on fibromyalgia research. Just 1.8 uh, million. 
Yeah, one point, which is like the price of a house in London. And it's like one in, apparently like one in 20 people have like some degree of fibromyalgia. And it's 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 sickeningly underfunded. And predominantly because I think a lot of it is uh, difficult to diagnose um, and it's difficult to monitor. So you don't really have necessarily the biomarkers for drug trials and things like that. And also it predominantly affects women and women's health is, is radically underfunded. So um, I do see DSI as a potential way of uh, galvanizing communities um, who have been underfunded um, and helping them, empowering them to share their data, create data biobanks, digital biobanks, and hopefully get some additional funding, maybe a little bit more than 1.8 million over five years would be nice um, to help people who are essentially, you know, uh, chronic health conditions, of which there are many different ones. And most of them have this aspect of fluctuate, fluctuation, fluctuation, fluctuating, fluctuating. Fluctuating. <laughs> <laughs> Um, fluctuating and that's another thing as well with fibromyalgia you get this thing called fibro fog and sometimes your words just come out a load of nonsense and you just have to kind of like deal with it so that's another aspect of it where you have these cognitive very cognitive and physical symptoms in fibromyalgia which is why it's i think a particularly interesting condition uh as well which if we funded research into it would probably actually teach us a lot about cognition and mental health and you know um cognitive ability and cognitive longevity and all those things which everybody's interested in not just people with fibromyalgia anyway i'm ranting now <laughs> no that's a great point i think there are things to learn from studying other diseases so there's like a lot of overlap in and um i'm sure fibromyalgia has like overlap with other sort of yeah. women's health issues as well so it's really interesting to consider mm -hmm. studying it do you know of any like patient communities for fibromyalgia that maybe you're a part of or maybe you're aware of and then are there any aside from athena dow which you know has talked about fibromyalgia are there other dci organizations that are looking into that just curious yeah it's a good question so there is charities all over the world like different countries will have like their own charities which again i feel is a little bit problematic sometimes when it comes to a global health issue um there's a uk fibromyalgia charity which i used to be a trustee of years ago there's one in the us i forget the name and it's very disparate and they don't really connect together and i think this is similar with lots of uh lots of illnesses and that's partly why i'm interested in DSI as well because of the global nature of connecting global communities so things aren't as siloed anymore um yes athena dow are more concentrating on reproductive health um there is um i did speak to someone recently who's putting together who's interested in creating a DAO around chronic pain in general but i do feel the problem with fibromyalgia is, is often lumped in with pretty much anything that you can lump it in with and that's partly because historically it was under rheumatology um and now i believe in the uk at least it's more under neurology which is where i believe it should sit um uh but a lot of the funding i think in the uk it's like from arthritis research and it's like oh gosh we just we're just lumped in with anybody so um i don't believe there is a dedicated fibromyalgia dow sometimes I think about starting one but obviously i'm a bit busy and maybe in the future it, i would love it if somebody did start a fibromyalgia fund though because it's it's chronically under research but the amount of the amount of value you have there adding to you know one in 20 people's lives alone but also the amount of science that that scientific discoveries that that will probably generate in terms of the mind body interaction the the pain we all understand pain um you know immunological luckily i think there's been a bit more funding recently because of it's a post-viral syndrome and, and some people call it post-viral syndrome for me it was post-viral i got glandular fever when i was 19 and kind of i got it after that so because of covid we're having more funding into post-viral syndromes um, thankfully, um, some of that will feed back into understanding more about fibromyalgia and, and chronic fatigue as well. But ultimately, it's it's all meshed in. And uh, I think it needs a big rethink of even how it's um, framed and diagnosed and what it comes under in order to even access more 
more funding streams is my opinion. Yeah. And if anyone out there listening is working on fibromyalgia, decentralized science work, reach out to us, reach out to Sarah. I think uh, we're both interested in just learning more about that. So awesome. Um, Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation and interview. I thank you so much for your time. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to share with the audience today? Um, I don't think so. Just thank you for having me on. This has been amazing. Oh, sorry. Yes. Well, I did want to mention that I'm starting my own po uh, podcast. So if you follow me on Twitter, um, you'll get the updates on that. But I've learned a lot from you. You know, you're a very skilled podcast to interview. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and rethink um, how, I've, how I'm doing my podcast. I think I've learned a lot from you. So tell thank you. Sorry. Tell us what your podcast is about again. Oh, so it's it's called as we march backwards into the future and it's really just about me interviewing people in the space but like you're doing here i'm interested in interviewing people who are really sort of pushing the boundaries of current technology um pushing ways of doing things doing things in innovative ways so probably lots of people from the DSI space I've, I've got a few lined up um also i'm probably gonna have a bit of a neuroscience theme because i'm obsessed with the brain um but going more into other sort of avenues of, of science as well um so yeah i'm hoping to release my first episode soon uh, but also might not because it's just me motivated to do it. So I'm sure it will come out eventually and then I'll keep interviewing people and uh, hopefully people will like it. And if you don't, uh, at least I've had fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, you know, when and if you publish it, I think um, it sounds like you're interviewing some of the rebels in the science space. So that's awesome. Yeah. I did actually think about calling it rebel science oh. for a while, uh, which is much more catchy, but I also wanted a bit of a weird title just because I thought it was Cool. I, like, I like the <laughs> first title. Um, <laughs> great. Well, um, for the audience, if you have any questions, concerns, or ideas generated from this discussion today, please reach out to us by email or via our socials. We would love to talk to you and invite you uh, to the, you know, to join the Vibe community. So thank you again. Like, follow, subscribe. Really appreciate it, everybody. Um, Sarah, thanks again. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vibecast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share a review and rating on your favorite podcast player. If you are working towards your next round of financing for your drug development program, we'd be thrilled to connect with you and explore how we can offer our assistance. Check out vibebio.com for more information. You can also find videos of these podcasts on the Vibe Bio YouTube channel. We look forward to hearing from you.